I've always been a guy who liked happy relationships with people around me. I don't like to disappoint people any more than the next man. But today I'm probably going to disappoint someone. I'm probably going to be knocked down a few notches in some of your minds. If I, if I had a Facebook account, you would unfriend me <laughs> this afternoon. I'm going to go today from, for some of you, being my pastor to being that preacher. There'll be some who simply won't like what we have to say because today we're going to talk about wives submitting to their husbands. It's our passage for this morning, Ephesians 5.22. It is without question one of the most ridiculed and unpopular statements in all of Scripture. Just a few weeks ago in a presidential debate, a moderator was nearly booed out of the building for asking a female candidate if she submitted to her husband. In the days that followed, he was pummeled by critic after critic for even raising the specter that a woman would have any obligation at all to submit to a man. Society is offended by many things in Scripture. Among the most Offensive, however, is this command for wives to submit to their husbands. The whole notion really smacks to them of exploitation, of oppression, of abuse, and tyranny. It necessarily, in the minds of many people, sort of demeans women. It stifles what they see would be their full potential, their powers and gifts and welfare and freedom. And so ever since the 1960s really in the sexual revolution there has been a strident uprising against the notion that a woman ought to submit to her husband. Now for almost 50 years this has thought been thought to be sort of an extinct apparatus like a rotary telephone or a tube television. Something you might find in some backwoods cabin, but certainly not in mainstream society anymore. Interestingly though, as society has discarded this biblical paradigm of authority and submission, there has been at the same time a parallel and unprecedented destruction of the whole institution of marriage. In the same 50 years since the 1960s, you have seen like no other time in our own history or no other time in nearly any other civilized place or time, you've seen an unprecedented dissolution of the family. Already as a result of the sexual revolution of the 60s, by 1970 the divorce rate in American society had exploded to nearly 50% of all marriages and it's hovered right around that same rate for the last 40 years. The emotional, the financial, the spiritual uh, toll of that, the spiritual cost of that, have been utterly devastating. It led Susan Thomas a few weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal to label the current generation as the divorce generation. Or as most people would would have uh, re had some reference point in their childhood to maybe some memorable vacation or maybe some memorable uh, graduation, some achievement. This generation, she says, marks their childhood by when their parents split up. 
And it shouldn't be encouraging to you that while the divorce rate has hovered around 50% for the last 40 years, at least it's not gone higher. Some people might see that as some sort of silver lining, as though perhaps we've stemmed the tide at least. But the newest levels of devastation of the family are seen in the surge of cohabiting couples. U.S. government statistics indicate that 60% of people now cohabitate before making the choice to be married. And of those participating in cohabitation, nearly two-thirds of them break off the relationship before they ever reach the altar. So if you were to add those numbers, those statistics to the ones that we keep for broken marriages, you are likely approaching 75% of couples that do not survive either marriage or cohabitation for a minimum of eight years. The emotional wreckage is enormous. It's left a society where a 2008 survey of the U.S. Government of National Health Statistics, the Government Center for National Health Statistics, revealed that an astonishing 46% of America receives some sort of mental health treatment. So I think it might be fair to say that with barely a 25% success rate, I wouldn't recommend looking to society at large for advice on what makes for a happy or successful marriage. The outcome, by the way, of all this has been particularly devastating for women. Those seeking mental health treatment are, according to those same statistics, are twice as likely to be women rather than men. And if you were to take out particularly that subcategory of substance abuse, which is disproportionately uh, tilted towards men, if you were to take out that one category, then by and large, far and away, those seeking mental health uh, treatment of some sort are always women. Women have borne the brunt of the pain of the divorced generation, often being forced to shoulder, shoulder uh, parental, educational, financial, and in, even spiritual responsibilities in their home, all the while trying to eke out some sort of a career to sustain themselves. If ever there was a definition for stifling and demeaning and abusing women, that would seem to fit the description, right? If ever there was a system designed to exploit and oppress women, it would be hard to beat the effects that have fallen on women through the unprecedented breakdown of the family. If ever there was a pattern to suppress the full potential and power and giftedness and welfare and freedom of women, it must be the kind of system that would lead a woman to falsely believe that her freedom and her happiness will only be found as she cast aside a paradigm of placing herself under the care and protection and leadership of a husband. Because that's exactly what we find today. And it's been hard. It's been hardest on women. This is exactly, though, what the Bible calls for that a woman would place herself in exactly that kind of position under a husband. It's exactly what the Bible presents as the most beautiful, fulfilling, freeing, empowering, 
fruitful paradigm imaginable for women. Now, for some reason, this idea of submission is distasteful for society at large. For some people, it's distasteful, not so much because society has told them, but it's distasteful and it's bitter to them because of their personal experience. Some people hear someone refer to submission or someone talk about submission and they say, well, you don't know my husband. You don't understand my situation. He's inconsiderate. He's irresponsible. He spends all of our money. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about the family. He's consumed with his job. He sits around and watches sports all day. He doesn't discipline our children. He doesn't care about the Lord. He's not a leader. He's lazy. Whatever it might be, there's some element of personal experience that causes some women to resent this idea of submission. But even for those women, God's plan of submission not only applies, but it offers the greatest wisdom for dealing with your situation and the surest path to peace in your home. I know no matter what your personal perspective is on submission, most couples enter into marriage with high expectations. They marry believing and hoping for the best, thinking that they had found just the right mate, only to find too often that expectations run into frustrations and turn into disappointments. Couples get into marriage and the newness of the marriage wears off. The newness of kids, the newness of a new home or a new career soon fade away and the frustrations and disappointments with their spouse seem harder and harder to ignore. But this message and the messages that we're going to be spending our time on in the coming weeks are for you who find yourself in that position as much as anybody. Because God has designed the institution of marriage for a blessing. He's designed it so that every couple regardless of their personality, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their background, regardless of what happened in your own home and the parents that you had, regardless of all those things, God has designed marriage so that you can experience a oneness, a blessedness, so that your relationship with your husband or your wife can be the crowning grace of life as God intended it to be for every couple. It can be a relationship as he designed it of one flesh. But that oneness of marriage is only achieved. It only comes about as you accept, as you embrace, and as you live according to the divine wisdom that God has revealed in his word. And to the extent that we set that aside, we forfeit even the opportunity at the unique fulfillment and oneness that God's designed for every marriage. So with all that said, we want to turn our attention this morning to God's Word, to Ephesians chapter 5, and to His instructions on marriage. And this morning particularly, looking at God's design for wives in marriage. And today and the next time when we get together, we're going to be taking a look at six qualifiers of this command Six qualifiers of this command 
for wives to submit that will help us to understand the reasons and the ways that God intends for women to be blessed in marriage. Let me begin just by reading these couple of verses for you. Ephesians 5, verse 22, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The first qualifier here that helps us understand the ways that God expects submission, the reasons that God expects submission from wives, is this, that submission is not limited to wives. Submission is not limited to wives. This is simply to say that God has established the world in a series of relationships that involve order and structure that involve authority and submission. We mentioned this last time, but it bears repeating that verse 22 has no real verb in it. It actually carries forth or carries forward the verbal idea of verse 21. And verse 21 is where we actually find the word submit. In verse 21, we find a statement about those who are filled with the Spirit. And this statement isn't just about wives and it isn't just about women. It's about all Christians. And what Paul is saying is that one of the signs of a person who's filled by the Spirit is that they will submit they will submit, not just women in marriage, but they will submit as believers in whatever capacity that they are required to submit by God's word and by God's decrees. And what you have in verse 22 and through the rest of this chapter are some specific examples of what that submission will look like. Paul speaks about wives and husbands. He speaks about children and parents. He speaks about slaves and masters. He just as well could have included congregations and elders or citizens and governments. But whatever position you are in, as a believer being filled by the Spirit, you will demonstrate submissiveness to the authorities that the Lord has established over you. That will be one of the crowning evidences of the Spirit filling your life. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, submission will be a part of your life. And we almost inherently recognize the necessity of this. In nearly every category of life, we may wish that we had equal say in all things along with our boss, but we would quickly recognize that if every employee had the same right, the same authority, that it wouldn't produce a very harmonious or very productive environment, right? There would be constant bickering, constant infighting, and almost no decisiveness. We might get frustrated with politicians and bureaucrats, but we realize the total anarchy that would ensue if no one was in charge in government. And that person is a fool who might think that they should give their children equal authority in all decision-making in the home. So we recognize that authority and submission are necessary elements for productivity for fruitfulness and for order and structure in all of society. 
There's all kinds of relationships where we inherently recognize the value of authority and submission. But when it comes to the home, so many people have latched on to the unrealistic ideal that harmonious relationships will be found only when there is a complete equality of authority within the home. The structure of authority and submission then is not something to be resented. It's something to be recognized as absolutely the best thing for us. A spirit-filled believer will understand that. That no matter what their particular role where the Lord has placed them, no matter what authority to whom they have to submit, they will recognize that God has not only ordained these roles, but He's also ordained the authorities. And that He rules as sovereign over all of them. Be it husbands, governmental leaders, church leaders, employers, or whatever it might be. You see, we're told that authority and submission are really the result of some sort of sinful, selfish tendency of man. Some people would maintain that the true height of civilization would be a place where everyone has equal and absolute ownership and equal and absolute authority. We're told that really this is the ideal, that everyone is is allowed to be a completely free and sovereign agent. Absolute freedom of will and conscience. We're told that that is really the path to blessedness. Because the most blessed relationship is found in your own self-determination. But the scripture says that's not true. That is not the ideal. That the ideal is the one that God has established. And the one He's established, He's established for your blessing, for your peace, and for your productivity. And the one He's established involves authority. In all of its aspects, and all of its forms, God has ordained authority and submission. The most blessed relationship in which you and I can exist is a relationship where we are under someone For our good and our benefit. It's the most blessed relationship. Because that's the position. Where you most reflect God. This is the way that you can most reflect Him. Because. Authority and submission. To be in a a relationship of authority and submission. Is to be like God. You say, well, I thought God was above all. I thought that He was sovereign over everything. Yes, God is, but within the Godhead Himself, there is authority and there is submission. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And you'll see that this is exactly the way Paul addresses the issue in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says in verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of wife of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. 
Paul's making some parallel statements here, and what he's saying is that there's authority and submission that runs throughout the entire universe. In the spiritual realm, every man is to be under Christ's authority. In the domestic realm, every woman is to be under her husband's authority. And within the Godhead, Christ is under God's authority. He's under God's authority. This is exactly why God established creation the way that He established it. This is the why the, He made the world the way He made it. Because it's a direct reflection of Himself. And He understood that there could be no greater blessedness than to be like Him. And to reflect Him in the greatest capacity that we can. The issue, though, is that you and I, in our essential nature, are not a trinity. We don't exist as a single essence with a tripartite personality. And so this authority and submission cannot be expressed within ourselves. And so God has reflected it in society. He's reflected it in society. Because He knows there's no greater possibility of blessedness, but that we all grow to reflect who He is. And this is a reflection, a direct reflection of God's perfect nature. So Paul says, look, this is, first of all, in all of His divine authority, Christ is the head of every human being, every believer or unbeliever. Most of mankind, of course, will never recognize that authority. But Hebrews tells us that God has put all things in subjection under His feet. And that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess on earth and in heaven that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And those who are unwilling to submit to His authority constitute the rebel world and those who are willing to submit to His authority constitute the church. Christ is the authority over every man. And he exercises that authority, of course, for the purpose of redemption. That's one aspect of authority. By the way here, authority and submission uh, is often spoken of in terms of headship. That's the way Paul speaks of it here. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. It's interesting to take note because a lot of people who would want to deny this doctrine of submission in Scripture, by using the Scripture, they would actually want to suggest that the word head has no inherent idea of authority. It has the idea of source. And the reason the Scripture calls man the head of his wife is simply because God created man and out of man He made woman. And so they would say head simply means source, but it has no implication of authority. That would be hard to maintain in Paul's statement here when he says that Christ, that the head of Christ is God. Right? Because we don't believe that God is the source of Christ. We don't believe that God somehow created Christ, that He's some created being. He didn't come out of God. He is God and has always been God. 
He exists eternally alongside God the Father and has existed that way forever and will exist that way forever. This headship and this submission that Paul speaks of here in the Godhead is the eternal nature of God. And it's a nature that involves authority and submission. It's abundantly clear as you look in Scripture that Jesus is absolutely equal with God. There are times when He's called God. Isaiah 9, 6, of course, speaks of Him as, as the eternal Father. Mighty God, it refers to Him, the child who's born to us, the son who's given to us. Jesus Himself says in John 8, He says, Before Abraham was, I am, taking for Himself the divine name of God, I am. Colossians 1.15 puts him in the place of God as the one by whom and through whom and for whom everything was made. Excluding, of course, himself. He couldn't have been made because then everything wouldn't have been made by him. John 1, of course, we are very familiar with John's statement that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So everything in Scripture, everywhere you look... There's always an absolute affirmation of the person of Christ being one and the same as God. And yet, despite that equality, the Bible is equally clear that Jesus submitted to the Father's will. In fact, look with me for just a second at John 5. John chapter 5. In verse 30, this is the way Jesus expresses His submission. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 6.38, you can see it in another passage. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. You see it in another passage and in another way. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes in verse 28 that when the end comes... When all things are subjected to Him, that is to Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. So in other words, this is not some temporary thing that's going to exist while Christ is simply on the earth. It won't exist simply while the earth exists. It will exist for all eternity. Christ will will be as He has always been in subjection to God and all things that are under Christ, He will put in subjection to God. So that God may be all in all. Over and over again, you have this testimony that this Lord and Savior and Christ exist in a position of submission. And it wasn't grudging 
submission. Jesus said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. It's the most satisfying and nourishing thing that I can do, He says. John 17.1, His whole purpose was to seek the glory of God. And you can hear in all of His statements a sense of joy and fulfillment in his role because he understood that both roles result in the betterment it results in the blessing mutually for one another all this said we know the son was in no way inferior to the father he was in no way less valuable than the Father. In no way was He less important. In no way was He less wise, less intelligent, less capable. All of this submission of the Son to the Father in no way implies any deficiency in the Son. Everywhere Scripture speaks of Him, it speaks of Him in His absolute perfection. His role is different, but His being is not inferior. And if you want to grasp this statement and this paradigm that God has laid out for women, you must grasp that. For you to begin to see this mandate and this authority, this mandate for submission and the authority that God's established doesn't arise because women are somehow inferior to men or somehow less intelligent than men or somehow less important before the Lord any more than Christ is any of those things before God. Or any more than even that you or your husband as you submit to governing authorities are less intelligent or less important or even less capable than those the Lord has put in authority over you in your job and in your government. You'll begin to understand that God hasn't put this role of submission in place in order to suppress anything. He hasn't done that in order to suppress or oppress, or stifle, or any of that. Any more than he wanted to stifle Christ, or suppress Christ. This isn't a formula for denying all of those gifts, and all those freedoms, and all the blessedness. Any more than it was for Christ. This submission that God has ordained Instead, is the way for you to experience the full blessedness of your abilities and gifts and intelligence. And it's a place where God has designed for all of those things to flourish in their greatest capacity. This isn't a reflection of somehow the imperfection of man. It's not a reflection of the fall. In fact, this was something that was established before man ever fell into sin. And when it's properly understood, it is a sign of that perfect relationship 
that God ordained. A perfect reflection of who God is himself in the perfect design of mankind. It provides the perfect environment for men and women to most flourish in their lives. All that helps us to understand why the Spirit-filled believer will embrace whatever role of submission the Lord has placed them in. It doesn't matter if you're at work. It doesn't matter if you're in government. It doesn't matter if you're in the home. The Spirit-filled believer will see this role as the one with the potential for the most blessing in their life. And this, as we said, is applied by Paul to wives, to children, to slaves or employees. And it applies to every believer, male or female, in our relationships with one another. So it's not the unique place of women. It's not the unique place of wives. It doesn't imply any sort of inferiority. Any more than the submission of Christ implies his inferiority to God. It is the wisdom of and perfection of God or that God has ordained this kind of structure for everyone involved. We can go back to Ephesians 5 then and add a second qualifier. Not only is submission not unique to wives, but we can also say submission isn't optional for them. Submission is not optional for wives. As we said in verse 22, it carries forward the verbal aspect of verse 21. In other words, it carries forward the imperative, the command to submit. Wives, submit to your husbands. And although technically the verb isn't there in verse 21, it is without question implied. Excuse me, although it's not there in verse 22, it's without question implied from verse 21. And in case you're in doubt about that, you could... You could simply read Colossians 3.18. You could read 1 Peter 3 where it is explicitly in the verse. A command. An imperative. Over and over again when you read about marriage in the New Testament. You encounter this command for wives to submit. It's not a suggestion. It's not presented as one of several options for you to use as you approach marriage. It isn't contingent on certain personalities or certain relationships. It doesn't have footnotes to exempt you if you have a certain kind of husband. It is universally commanded for all women, plain and simple, what the Lord requires of you. Now, just as plain as that is, we should also note that this command is not in the passive voice. In other words, this isn't a command for you to let yourself be submitted. It is in Greek what we call the middle voice, which is sort of a reflexive voice. It is something, in other words, that you do to yourself. The verb is hupotasso. It is made up of Hupo, which is to place, and tasso, which is to order or, or, or structure. Excuse me, hupo, which is under, and tasso, which is to place or structure, uh, order yourself. And so the idea is that you place yourself under, you order yourself under, you set up a structure where you're under your husband. Paul puts a 
responsibility then of submitting on the wife herself. That is to say, as you look at this, and not only here, but in every passage of the New Testament where you find this command, it's always in this middle voice. It's always in this reflexive voice, every time. This is a call, in other words, for wives to place themselves in this position. Not by compulsion, not by manipulation, but willingly. Paul's not mandating servile submissiveness. He's not mandating for husbands to try to break the will of their wives, to eliminate that. The New Testament never calls on husbands to make their wives submit, to subordinate their wives. The command is always directed at wives as free agents before the Lord. It's always directed at their wills. Because they will stand directly before the Lord to give an account of this. And so he lays the responsibility squarely on their shoulders. For husbands who have wives that might reject this design, you're not given the right to therefore dominate your wife, to therefore force her to this role. You're not given, as I said, authority to try to break her will, to manipulate her with 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 fear or with guilt. In fact, one of the biggest motivations in her life for this ought to be that she would have joy in placing or ordering her life under yours because she recognizes the blessedness of that. She recognizes how carefully you would guard that authority. In her best interest. So the Bible appeals to women. As equally valuable before the Lord. As equally cognizant of his commands. As equally ready. To engage in what he's called them to. The Lord commands this of women. And places it squarely at their feet. To experience his blessings. We could add to that now a third qualifier. Not only is it not unique to women, not only is it not optional for women, but submission is not general. It's not general for wives. This is what Paul says here. He's very specific that wives are to submit to your own husbands. There is to be a special and unique attitude towards the man the Lord has given you as a husband. In other words, you're not called to submit to all men. That's not necessarily your responsibility. I'm not saying that because you're married, you now then can forego your responsibilities to submit to the government or properly submit to elders the Lord's placed in your life. But outside of those spheres, your submission is uniquely expressed to your own husband. Or another way to say that is that you're not to seek leadership from other men apart from your own husband. No matter how respectable or worthy you may esteem them, 
You and your husband may decide to seek the counsel from other men. In fact, you should when you make big decisions. Always seek counsel from as many godly voices as you can. But that decision is made together. And I think the thing that Paul is emphasizing here is this unique relationship that you have to your own husband, not to someone else's. In other words, you're not to let the discontentment that you might have with your own husband allow you to begin showing greater respect to some other man that you deem worthy of it. Like I said, this doesn't rule out you submitting to Governing authorities in your life, you submitting to spiritual leaders, the Lord's placed over your church life. But this deals specifically with the tendency in some women to act with greater respect or to speak with greater respect or to look with greater admiration for men who are not their own husbands. This is the realization of the sovereignty of God who has given you The one unique man in your life to whom he's called you to submit. And it's the realization that the greatest blessing in your life is when you live according to his design. And with a content heart in that relationship. I once heard submission compared to two women jumping out of a plane. Both experiencing the thrill of the freedom of falling through the air. One, in, one difference, though, is that one of them was encumbered with a parachute. And the other was free of such a burden. One with the parachute, oh, excuse me, the one without the parachute felt free. Even more free because she didn't have all those straps on her. But she wasn't truly free, was she? She was in bondage to gravity. She was deceived, thinking all's well because she felt the momentary exhilaration of the moment. But really, it was a false sense of freedom. She was really in bondage to a coming calamity that she'd not anticipated. That's the way a lot of people. Evaluate life, how they presently feel at the moment. But true freedom takes God's reality and God's purposes into account. It seeks out what is fitting according to His design. And mature, wise, godly women do not seek their own freedom by bending God's rules to fit their momentary desires. She seeks freedom not by conforming to the world, but she seeks freedom by having her mind transformed and renewed by God according to His Word so that she may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. John Piper says, The greatest freedom is found in being so changed by God's Spirit that you can do what you love and at the same time know that it conforms to the perfect design of God that leads to life and glory. Well, that is, in many ways, just an introduction to this whole idea of submission. As you can see, we've just touched on it. And we will come back to this in two weeks. 
and uh, hopefully finish up this passage when we come back at that time. Let's stand together and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Lord, we want to take the time to get our minds around this important subject, not just for wives, but for all of us, that we would understand what it is to be filled by the Spirit, that we would understand by having the Word of Christ richly dwelling in our hearts, the perfect designs that you have for us, the perfect places that you've put us, perfect relationships that you've designed for us, and that we would flourish in those relationships. Lord, we pray then that you would help not only the wives among us, but our entire congregation. That we would reflect Christ in every way possible. And that in doing that, we would experience the full blessings of submission, the full blessings of trust, the full blessings of obedience. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.